All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast, number eight, rounding out the top 10 replays of 2022, is David Green. David Green is another gentleman that I was lucky enough to spend some time with at BPCon. We hung out after. Um, I popped up on a couple of his webinars since then. I've joined his mastermind since then, the David Green Mastermind DGM. And uh, again, freaking awesome guy. What a rock star. What a, what a just normal, down-to-earth dude that just does amazing things. The amount of content he puts out with bigger pockets and the YouTube stuff he does and now the Seeing Green podcast and all, all just so much stuff. The guy's everywhere. He puts in so much time. He crushed it uh, at the BP con uh, conference set out there that we went to in San Diego. It's going to be a staple every single year. I will be there from now on. And uh, hopefully I can do more and more stuff with uh, the bigger pockets groups and especially with David this year. Uh, guy I very much look up to. Uh, inspiring. I don't know who wouldn't look up to a guy like David Green and uh, just, you know, my kind of guy. There's some people that are just your people. They're successful. They have similar attitudes, similar visions, uh, similar ethics, similar everything. And uh, that's just a, a guy that I would like to spend more time with and be around more. And uh, I'm very honored to have him in my circle and be able to pick up the phone and touch base with him, not only in real estate stuff, but just talk life, business, jujitsu, and uh, Again, just just a good freaking guy. So we need more people like that. But David Green is a freaking rock star. And I have to say, I think that this is one of the best David Green interviews I have ever heard. I might be partial to it because I was on there. But again, never about me. It's always about the guests. And I thought we touched on a lot of different topics and some different stuff that he didn't really get to talk about and a lot of the other stuff that he does podcast-wise, Bigger Pockets-wise, talking on some of this stuff with martial arts and jiu-jitsu. And um, it was just cool. I mean, obviously the guy talks and talks and talks online and on podcasts and stuff all the time. And he's still constantly coming up with new things I haven't heard, new stuff to say, new ways to say it. So I can't imagine the amount of stuff that goes on in that guy's brain. And I'm very excited to be a part of his mastermind and listen to all the knowledge he's going to drop in this changing market when we really need people like him at the forefront of it. I appreciate that it's a lot of responsibility that people go to him for figuring out what's happening in the market and what they should and shouldn't do. And that's a guy that takes that responsibility very seriously, which means he is my type of guy and the perfect guest for the A-Game podcast. So my buddy and one of my uh, guys that I look up to, David Green, thank you for coming on for one of the best David Green podcasts you guys will ever hear. A-Game podcast. A-Game.com slash links to all the show notes to connect with me everywhere. Definitely appreciate all of you guys. Have a safe and happy holiday. And looking forward to 2023. Text real estate if you guys want to do some deals together. 516-540-5733. Nick.com slash links. A game podcast. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick Lamagna. Digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. My guest today on the A-Game Podcast, once again, is a former police officer turned full-time entrepreneur. He's been featured on CNN, HGTV, and TED Talks. He is a real estate black belt, specializing not only 
in real estate investing from single-family rentals to burr properties to multifamily and luxury short-term rentals, which we will talk about, including an amazing 6,000-square-foot mansion in Arizona that he recently purchased. He is the founder of the David Green team and the CEO of the top-producing Keller Williams East County team, as well, if that wasn't enough, as the co-owner of One Brokerage. He's the author of multiple books, including The Burr Book and Long Distance Real Estate Investing, combined with his other books, have sold over an impressive 450,000 copies worldwide. He is recognized as a national keynote speaker and an absolute legend on the educational podcast scene, being best known as one of the hosts of the world-famous Bigger Pockets podcast and widely respected by some of your favorite social media influencers, investors, and MMA figures. He's also setting the standard now for excellence in the business world through strategies, tactics, and connections through his new mastermind, the David Green Mastermind, which we are definitely going to talk about. You can jump in with him and start to invest in properties together when you visit investwithdavidgreen.com. He is an uncle, a jujitsu practitioner. I consider him a friend at this point. And welcome back to the A-Game Podcast. And thank you for being our guest on the very special episode 200 of the A-Game Podcast. Everybody, please welcome the man, the myth, the legend himself, Mr. David Green. Wow, Nick, you did that in one take. (laughs) I got to say, like, if I ever get into online dating, you're writing my profile. That was impressive. It's an impressive resume. I had to pick and choose, like, what I hit at some certain point. I know it's, like, weird to hear it, so I was like, I can't go too long. But, man, you have an encyclopedia of highlights on you, man, and I, I love having you on, and I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you so much for sharing your time once again today, sir. Thank you for that. Yeah, the last time we had a conversation, I thought it was really good. I literally thought of you a week ago because I was driving down the road and there was a big dead squirrel on its back with its legs like straight up in the air. And I remembered our first conversation. So this is good timing. It comes up a lot, man. People reference it all the time when we talk about decision making and then they talk about our episode. I mean, I thought that was just such a such a great thing and an easy talk. And again, you are very highly respected by a lot of fellow friends of mine. So always great to have you on, man. And I almost had to to cut off our prior talk because some of the things it was like, man, this would make such a great podcast. This is what's such, such a great podcast. But we were touching on a, t- uh, a number of different topics. And one of them I definitely wanted to make sure we touched on was since the last time you were on, you have gone through a lot of personal and professional changes. And I think you get into this flow and like real estate's good. The brokerages are good. The team's going good. And then all of a sudden, like, okay, brand is no longer doing the bigger pockets thing with you. And I think people just assume because you're David Green and you're Superman that you don't go through the same insecurities and self-doubts and things that anybody reacts to as a human for, okay, this has changed. Then you're like, you know, I had a buddy that flipped like 900 properties in one year and then somebody like something happened with his partner and he went back and all of a sudden thought to himself, well, I just got lucky. It's like, dude, you didn't get lucky 900 times in one year, but everybody has that stuff. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about what's been going on with you as far as the changes and how like mentally and psychologically you work through those, because obviously you've come out looking great and things are better than ever. That's really good. So let's see where if we break it down, I was telling you in the beginning, I went through an issue of identity theft where um, somebody listening to the bigger pockets podcast figured out the names of one of my companies. And that alone isn't a very big deal. I know the names of lots of other people's corporations, but They were able to edit documents online to add themselves as a manager to one of my LLCs and then forge my signature at a title company and literally steal the title to somewhere between 25 and 30 properties and then start selling them to other people. So uh, just FYI to everybody listening, if you own properties, you got to chill down your spine. That's good. You need to contact a local title company and say, 
uh, how could I lose title to these properties and look into that? Cause it happened to me and it happened fairly easily. I had no idea anything was going on until I started getting phone calls from people saying, Hey, are these properties yours by any chance? I saw in the chain of title that you owned them two months ago and this person's now selling them for about 10% of what they're worth. So I was able to get title back. That person's now in jail, thankfully. And uh, I didn't have to get involved personally. So I'm not in any form of lawsuit or going to jail myself. Luckily, I let the authorities handle it slower than I wish that it would have taken, but it eventually got done. I, I sold those properties so that wouldn't happen again. And I'm in the middle of a 1031 reinvesting. But see, through that process, the person I had just hired to run my portfolio was completely worn out. They, they couldn't handle it. It was all constantly on the phone with lawyers and law enforcement and affidavits and new information coming in. And it was very difficult for them to do that as well as kind of juggling the rehabs we had on other properties. So they ended up quitting just because they couldn't keep up. So now I got to go hire a new person to take over. The one brokerage, the lending company I started, I think we're probably the fastest growing loan company in the nation. It's, it's exploded. We're doing so good. But the leads came in faster than the people that I could hire and train to manage them, right? And that's how business works is you have this this ebb and flow. So now I'm, I'm out trying to find new people that want, that are either experienced loan officers that can come in and help right away or talented people that we can hire to eventually take over doing loans. So that's been a, a challenge as well as anytime somebody has sort of like skyrocketing success, which is what we all want, right? Everybody craves to be that overnight sensation where I'm going to make a million dollars my first year of this, or I'm willing to work for six months and then I want to pay off it's often not good. It's actually a curse in disguise when that happens, because you and I both know there's, uh, there's a saying that I, I heard, I think it was one of my old coaches said one in 10 men can handle adversity, but out of them, only one out of 10 can handle prosperity. But the weight of prosperity is actually much more difficult to bear than just the weight of adversity. And most people listening to podcasts like this one, they are familiar with adversity. They've gone through it in life. They've made peace with the fact that things will be hard in life and that's okay. But when you have success that comes very quickly, it is even harder to deal with than when something goes wrong. It, that's where you see like some of the most sad stories, the Mike Tysons of the world that made all this money and lost everything or a lot of these Disney stars, right? 14, 15 years old, and they're famous. They're peaking. Very few of those people come out of that nasty undertow. Okay. It's, it's difficult when you hit prosperity quickly. And something I've learned is there's a reason that God designed our bodies to slowly build muscle. Like you got to go put weight on a bar. You got to go lift it. It's hard. You break it down. It builds up a little bit and you got to do it again. If you throw a thousand pounds on your bench press, it will just crush you the minute that you let go and it comes out on your chest. Well, success is like that. If you try to throw that much you know, success on you at one time, it will often crush because your character isn't strong enough to sustain that yet. So a lot of the people in the companies I have, they, they come work with me, all of a sudden, bam, they're flying. They've got tons of production, tons of closing. They're getting awards. They're getting noticed. They're thinking in their minds like, man, I'm just, I've, I'm doing amazing. But a lot of it is because they're attached to me and the opportunity that's been created that I had to spend 20 years building, right? I've sort of got some, some stabilization in place to handle the success. It, it happened to me slowly over time. Well, bam, it gets slammed on them. 
So now you're dealing with like personality issues, entitlement issues, lack of focus. Like this person makes a ton of money and then that they all of a sudden they don't want to come in the office anymore. Or you see them making their TikTok videos like they're a big shot. And you're like, man, you've been, it's been nine months, right? So that creates challenges when you're the leader of a team or you're a business owner, all of that is going to fall on you. And the same is true with like the David Green team with, with how sales have been going. And then you throw into it that everyone does really good. And then the market shifts because interest rates go up and all of a sudden deals don't work that we're working and strategies don't work that we're working and you got to adapt. That can be tricky, especially when it's someone's first go around. You know, I know a lot of your listeners are martial artists or they're jujitsu practitioners. And I'm sure in jujitsu, you hit a point where you got like two or three moves that are your bread and butter that work every single time. And then you go start rolling with one belt higher and it's not working anymore. You got to start over and build from the ground up and you, you got to make peace with that when you're, when you're trying to operate at a high level of competition. But many times we have success as a white belt right out the gate. And, and we assume it's because we're so great. We don't realize it's maybe the competition's low. And so <laughs> you got to make some peace with the fact that you will have this. Yes, I'm crushing it. Oh man, I'm sucking. And life is always going to be bouncing between the two. Dude, you brought up so many great things that I, I just never even thought of like that. One of them being the fact that people can't handle prosperity. I almost, I almost had like a, a huge epiphany there that I never heard it like that before about the adversity. And it, it makes me think sometimes when I talk to people that are successful and it's like, man, there's always this common thing with entrepreneurs and people that are successful in anything that they, they're successful and then they're not. And then they have to reclimb and then they're not. It makes me think of maybe that is that self-fulfilling process. If it's not that things change, it's that they couldn't handle the prosperity and by default found a way out and went back down or were almost like I'm more comfortable climbing the hill. I'm not comfortable being at the top of the hill and had to restructure everything there. That's an amazing variation on what I've always thought, which may not actually be what I thought it was. Well, I see this show up at different people like Conor McGregor is a good example of that all the talent in the world, incredibly explosive person hasn't performed as well as we would have probably expected him to in the last couple of fights. But the Conor McGregor that was getting to be who we know as Conor McGregor was dirt poor out of Ireland. I got to do this willing to do whatever it takes to get to the top. That is his environment breeded that monster that he became. Well, when you get to the top of the mountain, your environment's not breeding monsters anymore. It's breeding soft people. Like very few of us crave to still sleep on the floor when we could be sleeping in silk sheets. In fact, that's usually what drives you to get to the top of the mountain is it's better up there. And that's why it's hard to stay at the top. It's harder to stay at the top than it was to get to the top and getting to the top isn't easy. That's adversity. You got to fight and fight and fight to get there. But when you get there, it's even harder to stay there. So I feel like that's a, it's an element of human nature that it, we're not, no one really prepares you for when you're climbing the mountain, your coaches aren't teaching you about what it's going to take to stay there. Right. But it, it's a thing. I, you hear GSP talk about why he's not competing anymore. Georgia St. Pierre. And he'll say the the anxiety of needing to perform at that level is so great. It sometimes just isn't worth it for me to be living in that state of I have to be at my best. He's driven by fear of failing, by fear of losing, by, by it, that that helps you get to the top of the mountain. That fear will push him to just be an animal when it comes to like technical detail and the work ethic he has. But once he's there, he's like, it's not worth it to stay here if I have to live with that same level of anxiety, right? So he doesn't want to stay there. I think about bands, you know, like Linkin Park was a, was a, I used to love the music they make. And now I'm like, I can't remember the last time they made a song I want to listen to. How, how did you guys go from being this good to this bad? 
I really think it's like when you get to the top, like you don't want to put the same level of work in that you did to, to get there, right? Like that drive naturally goes away. So on your journey to the top of the mountain, it's something I think more people should be prepared for is what am I realistically willing to do when I get there to stay? Because maybe I don't need to make it all the way to the top. That's that's I'm not going to want to stay at all the way at the top. Maybe, you know, three quarters of the way to the top is be good. And I can actually hold that position for the rest of my days. Man, that's such good info. So uh, a sidestep to that before we go into the other thing that you made me think about is we were talking a little bit before this that I think is just such a freaking awesome topic of having the accountability and the the responsibility of being a leader. So for instance, we had, we had talked about jujitsu and I said, you know, on top of it, it makes me make different decisions, not only for myself, because I want to perform better. I don't want to feel bad because I had too many Big Macs before jujitsu or I have a hangover. So I'm getting punched in the face more, but it's like, Hey, raging ally Akinta is asking me to come in and help him train for a fight. I want to be at my best for him. And like having that accountability of being part of a group that you want to show up and make sure you're bringing your part, I think is a huge piece. And to what you said, part of the prosperity of being successful, it's like you hire somebody, then you hire somebody else, and now you have a team. Two sides of that could be one, I now have to be accountable to other people. It's not just about me, but I have to show up and make money because these people are relying on me to make money for them and for their families. But the other side that I hadn't thought of until you said that is the fear of now I have, I'm the CEO. And now I'm flying first class and now people are coming to me because I'm the resource and I'm, I'm the, the authority on these different things. Is there some psychological barrier of I've made it to this point, people now see me at the top of this hill. What if I lose it? How am I going to go back up? What are people going to think if I have to go back to the bottom of the hill and I see the same people there? And I, I heard you talk a little bit about the, the drive of being the underdog and then the uncomfortableness of being the authority it's just a totally different role. And sometimes you're looking for that. So you create that in yourselves. And I, I don't, I don't know exactly what the direct question is there now, but I think it also goes to that not only fear of failure, but fear of success and playing in that role of how do I stay at the top of the mountain and then thinking, what is it going to look like if I fail? So maybe I just make myself fail now. So I don't have to spend the next 10 years worrying about when I'm going to lose the championship, when I'm going to lose the business, you know, and I think it's that, that inevitable fear that we put on ourselves and then maybe create that self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that the concept you're describing, if we could come up with a name for it, it would be really helpful. Cause I think <laughs> particularly with men, I think with some women, it may be the case, but I think in the, in the masculine journey where we tend to be judged as men by what we do, right. It just is just in general, but I think in general, men are judged by like, how high did you get compared to the other men? There's sort of a hierarchy that we're looked at. Whereas in general, when men are looking at women, we're kind of more like who you are. We're not expecting them to have done something to make themselves valuable. They're just got inherently valuable to us. So as a guy, you're very aware from the time that you're young, I'm being compared to all the other guys and I want to be the top person. This is why it's every guy's fear to be picked last for the kickball team, right? It is assigned to everybody in class. Not only are you bad at kickball, but you are more bad than every single other person in this class. And it can be destroy your self-esteem if you don't have something else where you can be good at. And I really feel like oftentimes if you look at the path that little boys take, it would be in that realm, I was humiliated, but in this realm, I was idolized. And so they throw everything they have into that. That's why you get somebody who wasn't that good at sports, but they were really good at taking tests that decide I'm going to Cal Berkeley. I'm going to Stanford. I'm going to get them as many PhDs as I can, because I'm going to succeed there. There's an absolute fear of failure. 
that directs us when it comes to like what we're going to throw ourselves into. And in the book, uh, Wild at Heart that John Eldridge wrote, I really like that book. He speaks about the fear that men have of even hitting a home run, like succeeding. Because the reality is when you hit the home run, you get all the cheers, you're on the bases, you're the hero. As soon as you touch on home plate, the thought goes in your head, I got to do this again the next time. It, it doesn't go away, right? This is why you're often depressed after your biggest victories, because you've now set a benchmark of this is what I expect of myself. And I have to repeat that same level of success. I, if I don't do as good the next time, I'm going to fall down. And it creates that anxiety that GSP would talk about. Like, it's very hard when you're expected to be the best to stay there. And I think many people get a taste of that at a small level. And like you were just saying, when they think about what it would be like at a higher level, it's like, that's not worth it. I'm going to sabotage myself before I even get there because the pressure of being the person that doesn't make mistakes, it's always number one that makes their way to the top that, that doesn't do anything wrong. It sort of, it can erode the joy of getting to the top, right? You work hard to get all these resources to have this life, but you can't enjoy it because you're on this pedestal that you're afraid to get knocked off of. I love that, man. And you know, you're, you're touching on things with the leadership side of it that I think is Another thing that I was lucky enough to have somebody in my life that's very much helped me with the emotional intelligence and being a leader and, and making sure I can come from a place of it's not about me, but other people are watching. So this is how you have to handle yourself because they'll always remember like the, these things that you did wrong, like it stick with you forever. You can ruin your reputation. But you and I were talking earlier about how you have all these people that are looking at you, not only for your own business and people that work for you, but people that listen to the podcast, they watch you on YouTube, they're part of your mastermind. And they're looking for you to be the voice of reason. It's almost like on the plane, there's turbulence. The first thing people do is they look to see, are the flight attendants scared? They're panicking? good, I'm good. Yep. So yep. in that case, it's you. It's like, you know, there's turbulent waters right now in real estate and you have your own crazy stuff that people don't know. Somebody just stole 20 properties in Florida. You don't unfortunately have the luxury of sitting there and going online and being like, guys, I don't know what's going to happen. What am I going to do? And like crying and getting drunk and stuff like that. Like you always have to have your game face on in the public eye. And that's just another pressure that you have of being a boss and a leader and an authority on real estate in general. How have you adapted to that? Was there, I mean, cause now people see you at the top of the mountain, they see you're handling and obviously you're, you're cool, calm and collected. But is that like, how do you deal with that on the daily struggle for the days that you just want to go drown yourself in Big Macs and take a nap? You know what I mean? Because everybody feels that way, but yeah. you, you don't. So how do you hold yourself to remind yourself to hold yourself like a leader and be that person and, and balance out being a human at the same time? Yeah, that's such a great question. The, when I was working as a police officer, I wasn't really accountable to anyone other than my partners and myself. So as long as I could keep them safe and keep myself safe, it almost didn't matter how I lived life. So at that time, I would drown myself in the Big Mac and take a nap when things came, like most people do, um, to escape the, the pain of, of whatever life was thrown at me. At that time, I'm working like 20-hour days. I'm sleeping two to three hours at a time, getting up, working another 20 hours. It was pushing myself as hard as I could in this one direction. So to compensate for that, I did need a lot of comfort in, in things that ended up being very unhealthy. But who cares? Because there's no one I'm affecting other than me, and most of us don't respect or love ourselves enough to even think about if we're hurting ourselves, right? It's just get to the top of that mountain. When I became a CEO, a leader of other people, when their well-being, their financial well-being, their, they were looking to me to see like, what do I do? It's in a sense, it's kind of like becoming a parent. I don't have any kids of my own, but I can, I can understand to a degree what that's like 
when someone dependent on you is looking at you, like, what do we do? I'm scared. So part of the pressures that I'm feeling now, it's almost a blessing that I have more responsibility than other people do because that option of going to take a nap while all the rest of them are suffering isn't there for me anymore. I can't go to sleep when I know they're all panicking and they're all worried. They're looking to me for strength. They're looking to me for direction. I've got to figure it out. So in that sense, where, where we tend to hide from responsibility, thinking less responsibility will give you the better life. I don't have to worry about anyone. I could travel the world. I could do it. That's what, everyone wants wealth for that reason, but it makes you a worse person. Oftentimes you rarely <laughs> ever see somebody who gets the best out of themselves. If you weren't training Al I Quinton, he didn't depend on you. You would have been out drinking with your buddies and sleeping until 1030 the next morning and given a half-ass effort when you got to the gym. And that's better than nothing. That's how you would have been looking at it, it was literally that responsibility that brought the best out of you. So it's one thing is to find ways to surround yourself with responsibility will sort of force growth. You know, when you were talking, I was thinking about my jujitsu instructor, the main instructor at the academy. He rips through all of us, right? When he's like, hey, you want to roll? Oh, I, I almost like, <laughs> he's got this high mount man where he just sits on your chest and you can't breathe. And I'm like, can I just get a mercy kill? Like, can you just <laughs> choke me out so I can get my breath again? Um, super nice guy, but that's what it's like. And I was, I was thinking when I was watching him last week, you know, what if he wasn't that good, right? He, he still would have the respect of the staff and the, and the class because he knows knowledge. He can still teach me techniques, but I don't think I would absorb it as easily if I knew that there's guys in this class that are better than him. There's just like a level of respect that you subconsciously would lose. Even though I like him as a person, his teaching would not have the same impact if he was not the most skilled person here. So when he rolls with the students, even the other black belts, like it's not much of a thing. He just goes right through him like a hot knife through butter. And it, it kind of made me think about that. He's got pressure that he's got to keep training. He's got to keep going. He can't let himself get super out of shape or just focus on teaching the class because if he did, he would lose our respect, right? Like that pressure on him helps him stay at his jujitsu game is going to, is going to be higher. And then I think about the Gracie family. Like, how did they become this good at it? Like they put out a challenge, anyone, anywhere, anytime, however you want to do it, we will win. Like no rules. Just if you show up, we will fight you. That would create a scenario that you have to be prepared every day. It's not like I got a training camp. I got six months to get ready for this fight. And when I'm not in training camp, I can let myself go. It would create an environment, a responsibility that you would have to always be at your best. And that's how you get a treasure like the Gracie family that just developed this martial art that's incredible because of the pressure that they lived under. So I guess what I'm wrapped, what I'm trying to get to here is it's too easy to say, I want an easier life. I want to make a lot of money in real estate to have an easier life. I want to get these properties to have an easier life. It's better to say, I want a more skilled life. I want a more prosperous life. I want a more impactful life. What do I need to do to create that? That's going to keep you in class, not, okay, I got my black belt. I'm done. I don't have to do this anymore. It is crazy because I see so many people that will tell me like, Hey man, you're, you're still training. You got your black belt. I'm like, I feel less effective than ever looking that. I mean, I literally got my black belt with Aljo and me and Aljo roll together. We don't both look like black belts. Like some people think that's the end of the journey. And then you realize that that's only the beginning. And like you said, man, like, business has changed. There's inflation things. There's Russia. There's this, there's that. There's all these different things. 
there's leg locks, there's freaking buggy chokes, like new things are getting invented, new problems yes. happen. And the Matt Serres and all these guys, they need to be able to come in because students are coming in and going, David, what do we do about inflation? Matt Serra, Gary Tonin, John Danaher, what do we do about buggy chokes? What do we do about leg locks? And they have to f- figure out how to come in and work around those things. And that's where, like you said, Matt can come in off the couch, just walk up and have 10 of the best black belts in his gym and he just tries whatever he wants to tr- it's not even an effort and like that level of like holy crap man like yeah. that's the guy how do we get there and i think that stuff is amazing and and like to not to but to tie it up i remember i sent matt uh, a jujitsu dvd one time and i felt like a moron i was like why am i sending matt sarah a freaking instructional thing and i was like dude i'm embarrassed even sending this text but I have this. I thought it was some cool things. And I just wanted to offer it to you if you wanted to see it. But I'm sure you know everything on there. And he was like, are you kidding me, man? He's like, there's so many things I could still learn. I would love to look at that. Like, there's always new stuff. There's always cool things. And I was like, that's why he's awesome. If at any point he was like, I know it all, David. I don't need to know anything about real estate. I've been there and done that. I'm Blockbuster Video. I'm I'm Toys R Us, you know, but they don't. And I feel like having enough of an ego to know like I am an awesome guy and I am an alpha and I can be a millionaire and I can be a black belt, but also being open-minded enough to know that there's always things to learn and there's always people to surround myself with to help me grow and be better skill, I think is really that fine line that we all need to have as business owners, entrepreneurs, and athletes. And I'm interested for you, how do you ride that line? Because it's like, you know, you're David Green, but you still have to go out and there's probably things that are changing that you need to learn or adjust to. So you have to be confident enough to go and be the leader, but you also have to be open enough to know that you constantly have to learn how to change and adapt with the market. It's okay. This is a great point. And I'll share how I look at things and I'll, and I want to also highlight, I don't think that I'm a Matt Sarah of what I do. Like Matt has put in more hours in jujitsu and more, I mean, depending how you, how you measure energy, calories burned, whatever, like he's put more effort into what he's doing than I even have with real estate yet. Okay. So, um, but the goal is to approach it like a Matt Sarah would. And this is where I want to highlight for the new people who are learning this. There's two ways to approach your learning. The first is just the easy road. And that's what I call it. It is teach me the technique, right? What are the four steps that I use to get out from under someone's side control? And they learn the technique and they say, got it done, check a box. Now I want to learn the next technique. That mindset leads to people getting PhDs in things that don't matter, leads to getting degrees or licenses in ways that don't help anybody, leads to getting a lot of knowledge and information. So you sound really smart at a cocktail party, but it doesn't actually translate into success on the mat or in your business, okay? It's largely ego-based and it comes from this understanding that in inquiring information equals power. And it's just not true. Like just think about someone who knows everything there is to know about health and fitness does not help them put down the Big Mac when it, when it doesn't matter how much you know a Big Mac is bad for you. That's a different muscle that is exercised when you're deciding if you're gonna eat it or not, okay? So uh, when I'm approaching jujitsu, I find myself doing it the same way that I do with other things in life. I want to learn the technique, but once I know the steps and it's like muscle memory, I'm constantly asking, why are, why are we doing that? 
right? And then you'll get a good instructor that will say, well, here's the thing. You got to get out from underneath them. But if you move, he moves. So when you do this, it locks this part of his body in place. So you can move your body around it. And that space is, and now boom, that is what I needed to know. The principle of holding him in place so that I can move and I'm using it. I'm using these muscles, not those muscles to do it for these reasons. Now I have a deeper knowledge than just memorizing a technique that I could check a box and say, I did it right. That's what I would call wisdom. It's wisdom versus information. That's the road that successful people take. So learning most people that come to us at bigger pockets or come talk to me, they have this idea that they're going to learn how to invest in real estate as in steps that are taken. Just give me a checklist of due diligence I'm supposed to look for. Tell me what I'm, where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do, and I'm just going to do it, right? But like you said, it's not a static environment where everything just stays still. Your opponent is moving. Inflation is happening. Tax rules are happening. Money is, is coming in from different areas into real estate that are making more people competing for the assets that you want. Sellers, the psychology of a seller is changing depending on what they're hearing in the news. Like there's a lot of moving pieces and it is physically impossible for you to memorize a scenario for every single one of these environments. You have to learn the principles of what makes it work. Just like with jujitsu, you're trying to understand like, all right, how do I get out from underneath the mount? Well, if I can get my legs underneath his hips, then that's, it's going to work. The best piece of advice I can give is when, when you're taught a method, ask why, why does that work? What makes that successful versus something else? And then doors open in your mind, just like I'm sure if you and I rolled, you would, you would do something you were never taught because it just makes sense. You're like, of course I would do that. Right. Whereas I'm like, well, my instructor didn't show me that technique. So I wouldn't have thought that's something to do like the Burr method. That's I talk about this thing all the time, right? All you're really doing is you're trying to figure out a way to add value to a property before you refinance it. That's all. You can add value through fixing it up. You can add value from buying it below market value. You can add value through buying in an area that's appreciating faster than the other areas are. You can add value through getting a certain kind of really cheap loan in the beginning while the property goes up. The mistake is people want to say, are you, well, you're supposed to do it through a rehab and there's no fixed up for property. So Burr doesn't work right? That's just, well, the technique that I was shown isn't working here. Well, the principle would still work. You just have to apply it. This person weighs 200 pounds more. So you'd have to do it this way versus that. And if I could give anyone advice, it's to avoid the easy road that tells you memorize a strategy or a technique and you're good. It's understand what made that work. And then your own brain will give you the solutions when you're in the middle of this rapidly changing environment, like what we decide where you make good decisions. If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesale, and fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com. Go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure. Or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. Freaking love that, man. And you're, you're 100% right because I think starting out, I used to do private lessons to go 
Ally Aquinta puts me at a front head like I get tapped out. How do I stop that? And it was like, well, you shouldn't be there in the first place. Here is where you've already messed up. So if you understand like how to avoid these things and when you're in there, like why that's working for him. And I used to get annoyed by that because I'd say, well, I just want the silver answer. And, and Matt would come back and say, is his arm over or under? Is it the left side or the right side? Is it the upper? And I'm like, I don't know, man. But it's like, there is no silver bullet answer to you. So your yes. point, when you understand the foundations and even like something so stupid and basic, like being in judo or being in side control, I remember Jason Rapp was like, dude, if you do nothing else, just put your hand under their elbows so their elbows aren't touching the mat. Because if their elbows can't touch the mat, they can't hip escape. Like they can't get down and leverage off. So even when I don't even know what to do, it's like, I know I can retreat to holding his two arms and at least buys me 30 seconds to remember what am I doing and what I'm looking mm. for. And that stupid thing, somebody might say, but that doesn't look cool on YouTube. That's not like a great sexy thing. It was like that thing that I paid for that wasn't maybe even what I thought I was asking for has helped me out in jujitsu for six years better than any of the flashy chokes because I understood the principle. And now I can do the same thing with his legs and all those things. And, and to your point now, those compound and the stuff that you forget, like I used to do omoplatas all the time when I was a white belt, I got away from it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, man, these things aren't working guys. Now my underhook game, oh, go back to the overhook, go back to the stuff that works. So parlaying that into our prior conversation with the things that are changing now and interest rates going up and the market's changing, like you had mentioned, there's a lot of white belts that made a lot of money in the last two or three yes. four years because they've never really had to face the adversity of a changing market. How important is it now looking back and feeling the confidence in you've been investing for so long that some of these old moves, your omoplatas, your, your basic umpa sweeps, you can now go back to when the market changes that these other guys only know how to do these fancy leg locks and real estate wise. That's the key, right? In this market, if you just look at people, like the number one question everyone will say is where do you find deals? Okay. Which what they usually mean is where's the easiest place to find something that will work for what I want. There's this idea that getting a, an investment property is like going to the store and buying a stereo. Well, I could go to two stores, see which has the stereo the cheapest, and that's the one I'm going to buy, okay? Um, the problem with the market we're in now is what made this so lucrative for so long was no one knew about it. So if you go back 40 years, 50 years, and you want to invest in real estate, you have to know the guy in town that has been doing this for a long time to personally mend. It was just like jujitsu when the first Gracies came to America, okay? You had to know a Gracie if you wanted to learn what jujitsu was, and if you were... Lucky enough, I can't remember. What's the oldest brother's name? Elio's oldest son, Henry and Heron's dad. Horian. Yes. Horian. Okay. Horian. Okay. That's that's Heron's dad. Who, who We had him on the Bigger Pockets podcast if people want to check out that interview. It was very cool. Awesome guy. So he was the first one to come to Southern California and he was teaching people out of his garage. So you had an edge. If, if, you, were, if you knew the person who could personally teach you. Technology has increased to the point where now you can learn about real estate investing from listening to this, driving in your car, watching YouTube videos. The, the information is everywhere. So it's made it more accessible for more people to get in. And while we look at that like, hey, this is great. Real investing is easier. It's also more competition. So like if you were someone who was the first person in America to learn jujitsu, you were whooping everybody until now where everyone knows jujitsu and you got kids that are learning it at five years old and been doing it for 20 years. And they're just like savages, right? Like it actually, if you're trying to compete with other people, the information getting out there is worse. It makes it harder. And people don't realize that. Then you've got the fact that um, technology has made managing real estate easier. 
So you can own a lot of properties and it's not as much of a pain in the butt as what it used to be like. It's, there's a lot of ways you can track information. Your tenants can pay easily. If you need to find a handyman, you can go on an app like TaskRabbit. Bam, there's a handyman. You're not going around asking everyone you know, hey, you know, this guy that works in the, in the warehouse Monday through Friday on the weekends, he can double as your handyman because he's your neighbor. It's easy to find these kind of people. Now you've got institutional capital that's entering into this game that we're all in. And they're willing to take a much smaller return than one of us would be willing to take because they're doing it at so much volume. And I could go on and on and on about the competition has been increasing. You are now rolling with people that are bigger, stronger, faster, more experienced, more resources. They've been, it's like they're Drago and Rocky Four. They got the <laughs> best, best material that's been coaching them. And you're just like, man, what I used to do was good enough. And now it's not. People don't realize that in this market of investing in real estate, see, they think as a buyer, they're competing with the seller. No, you are competing with every other buyer that wants that house. You are in a competition. Other people want these assets and whoever wants it more or has the most courage or the most resources or whatever it takes is going to get it. And it's not being approached like that. So we were describing like the question, every, where do I go to get property? The places that you would go to find it the easiest are the same places everyone else is going to right? Like now the, these techniques that you used to learn that you thought were really good, like I could just like this fancy Zillow and, and I can go contact listing. I can write an offer right away. I got these, these super cool flying squirrel type <laughs> techniques that I can use. Like you were saying, they don't work because everyone's there. And a lot of these properties aren't even making it to the MLS to get on Zillow. A wholesaler is buying it before it ever hits the market, right? Now you got to go back to the bread and butter. You got to go back to talking to human beings. You have to go back to finding people that own real estate or whose grandparents own real estate and saying, I'd love to buy that house if anything ever happens to grandpa. Or do you know anyone who's going to be selling? And you got to get to them before it makes it to the MLS, right? These are like, go back to working to take his back and sink in a rear naked choke. And they're not going to be able to defend that. So I think you made a great point. The people that are going to win now aren't directly competing with the hedge fund. You're not going to win. Okay. You're looking for a way around that to where you can get something before it hits the market and you have to build up social skills and persistence and, and follow up fundamentals. I think a couple of things that save us in that is one, unfortunately, and fortunately, I guess most people aren't willing to do that. They listen to bigger pockets. They want to make money in real estate. And the second they go, well, it's competitive, you know, and I think even me, like, you know, you, you get on the mat, you go to a competition, I want to do a jiu-jitsu tournament. And when you first get on there, you assume that everybody's doing some crazy training you've never seen, they know stuff you don't know. And then you lock up and you do what you've always done and you tap a guy out and you go, oh yeah, I don't suck. And I do know what I'm doing. So I think by getting a couple of wins in there, you just close on a property. You did get this offer accepted. You start to get your confidence up of, yeah, there's competition, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm who people are also competing with. Like they have to worry about, they got to get a property, but they're competing with David Green, you know, and David Green's got yeah. his black belt in real estate too. So you got to kind of, again, it comes back to a little bit of the, the alpha in there and having a little bit of ego to know, like, I am good enough. I can compete with the best of them. However, I have also found that when people see that it's going to take a little bit of work and it's not just listening to a podcast, putting an offer, making a bunch of money, although there is a lot of competition, the majority of people are not going to put the time and the work into the things that you're going to do 
to make sure you do learn the principles and the fundamentals and go the extra mile, two, three, four levels deep to pick up a call, knock on doors, do mailers and have those conversations to get a deal. They're going to look for the next thing of like, okay, well, that sounds hard, but my buddy just bought an NFT. I'm just going to go find an NFT yes. to buy. My buddy just bought land in the metaverse. It's less competitive there. I'm going to go do that. So I think the fact that other people they want to get into real estate. And I tell them all the time, look, first off, deals aren't found. Deals are created. If you're not going to put the time in to create a deal, this is going to be hard for you. So don't do it. And two, right now it's easy to get into real estate. The key is staying in real estate. You can get in the game, but can you stay in the game for 10, 15 years like me and you have? And I think most people don't want that. They just want to be dropped off a helicopter on the top of the mountain and go look at me. And they're not actually going to work to climb up there. So I think, like you said, the people we're competing with today we're not going to be competing with tomorrow. Yeah. And you just made me think like real estate and jujitsu really do work from an analogy perspective because <laughs> I've been going to BJJ. I've been about probably almost a year, but I just haven't made it consistently for the whole year. I've had two, three, four month spans where I couldn't go at all. I went through like three different variations of COVID that all hit me back to back. And then I had an injury from BJJ that kept me out for a while. But after a year, I'm basically at the point where my fitness is improved to where my body can do more of the movements and I, I can get more repetitions in because I don't, I don't just get so tired from practicing whatever the movement would be that I can't do it. And um, there's enough muscle memory created in certain things that I can do it like in real time. I'm not like, oh, what am I supposed to do when I get here and you're, you're stuck, right? But that's a long time to only be able to say that's all I've done. Like <laughs> jujitsu is not designed to be a thing. Martial arts in general, teaching your body to move a certain way is not something that's designed to be done in a six month period of time. Any sport, you want to learn the fundamentals of basketball, you're not going to be good at dribbling a basketball if you've done it for six months. You have to do it for a long time. That's how our bodies are created to work. Uh, real estate is the same thing. It is not a good way to build wealth quickly. It, sometimes you fall into a scenario where, yeah, like you just got a great deal or the market took off and really helped you. We've seen a lot of that the last five years because we've been printing stupid money. But if you didn't have that stuff going on, you wouldn't see a ton of wealth being created right away, but it is something that when you've done it for a long time, it's almost impossible to fail at it. It's almost impossible to not make big money. Like I'm looking at stuff I bought 10 years ago, um, a couple properties. One of them was a fourplex. Every, every unit was renting for 700 a unit. When I bought it, we just put one on at $2,000, 10 year period. That's what it's gone up. Right. Um, I bought my grandma's house when she passed away. And at the time it was running for $1,100 a month. That one's going um, up for a new lease at $2,300. That's like, how do you lose money on a deal when, when it's gone up that much? But in the beginning, it was hard to make money. Like some, some years, the first couple, I might've made nothing because all the cash flow went right back into repairs or a tenant leaving and trashing it. And jujitsu is very similar. Like if you just go all the time for five years in a row, it's almost impossible to not be better than the person who knows nothing. You're going to be destroying people, but it's not something you can do right away. So that's another example of the people that are approaching real estate investing from a long-term perspective. I'm doing this for 10 years out, 20 years out, 30 years out, 40 years out. You can't fail. You're, it's not going to happen. You're going to crush it. If you're approaching it from, I need to succeed in years one through three, it's very hard to be successful. And what we're seeing is so much competition in the space. Well, everyone's looking at it from in the first three years, I'm not going to be making very much money. So I, I can't do this. But if you looked at it from a 30 year perspective, you could, and that's what the hedge funds see that we don't. 
they're not buying a property for a couple of years. They don't need to make a deal work so they can quit their job, right? They're looking at the long-term scenario. So that little shift in, in the average mom and pop investors thinking where they're saying, where could I buy a property that's going to make me more money later? So I, I don't get to quit my job in the first six months of investing in real estate will make a big difference in how their future turns out. Man, that is so spot on for a couple of the things that you and I were texting about that I was like, man, I could talk for hours just about this stuff. I never understood why the hedge funds were buying all those properties in the market crash last time. And now you look at them, you go, oh yeah, no, I totally understand why they're doing that now. But you had sent me a text about something you were mad about, which people don't usually get to see David Green mad. And you were like, <laughs> I'm mad about how fast six months just went by in the blink of an eye. It's just gone. And I think it makes you start to look back and go, man, I was on the fence because I didn't know what was happening with the market and the pandemic. But if I would have just bought even a break-even property in Florida or an Airbnb in Florida six months, a year ago, the market went up 22%. Like I, I would have, could have, should have done these things. And I have heard you talk about it too, that people, what if themselves out of every opportunity in life, I was just talking to Jason Dries about this exact thing. And they'll say, well, I'm, I'm ready, David. I, I've been on bigger pockets for two years. I want to invest. Let's do something. And you go, great. What are you looking for for return? You get on the return. Well, I want this kind of house. You get on the house. Well, what about the funding? You get on the funding. Well, what about the interest? And they literally will, what if every potential doomsday scenario, yes. but the reality is if they would have, as Jason said, just gotten in the game, but they'll keep finding something else, something else, something else, something else. And then 6, 12, 18, 24, 36, five years go by. And it's like, you, you never did anything. And I think more than ever, people are seeing now that like, look how fast the last two years went by. And if you sat on the sidelines and you did nothing, doing anything, would have been better. And like you yeah. said, even if it went down for six, 12, 18 months, two, three, four, five years, real estates, if you bought a cave and you lost money on a cave for a hundred thousand years, it's, it's worth more than it's ever been in, in life. So having that reality check of how quick life goes by and how fast those indecision moments just create nothing. And now you're worse than you were because now there's even more competition rates are even higher how do you deal with that? How do you convince yourselves to move and shake and take action or the people in your mastermind and stuff like that? I think yeah. we all deal with that on some level, but the fact that life is going by faster than it ever has before, and we need to start taking some actions and just getting a little bold about those decisions to create something, just take a step is better than taking no steps. We're getting into some really good, deep, esoteric type conversation here. <laughs> when I go down these roads, it's easy for me to forget what I was thinking when I started what you just said is true. The market's gone up a lot in two years. Well, there's an argument that could be made that, well, that's because it's about to crash. So of course you're saying it went up. It's unsustainable. If you buy it now, that's bad. Wait for the market to crash. And there's no way to know who's right. So when I hit a scenario where I'm listening to a podcast like this, or I'm hearing a person like David or Nick say, you should buy real estate. I always think, how can I know if this is a good advice? And the way that I test it is I say, well, how does everything else in life work? So if someone's telling me, hey, this is a way to make money, buy NFTs in the first two days, you're going to make a million dollars. I would say, well, what else in life works that way? And if I can't come up with anything, it's probably not true, right? So the what if game is, is really powerful because it shows that your brain and other well-intentioned people in your life will tell you not to do something. They will always come up with the reason why you shouldn't do it. So my question is, well, do I see this happening at other times in life? Answer is absolutely. If I say to someone, hey, do you want to go lift weights? Man, I want to, but I don't want to get hurt. I could pull a muscle. I could drop a weight on my foot. 
you know, and, and that's true. Like when I first started lifting weights, I was getting hurt constantly. I didn't know how to do it right. I have scoliosis. So anytime I lifted anything over my head, I would jack my shoulder up really bad. I couldn't turn my neck to the side. Like I had to kind of learn how my body worked. But if you focus on the ways you can get hurt lifting weights, it will seem safe to not do it versus if you focus on what if I need to be strong for something in the future and I'm not, how much could I get hurt there? If you go to jujitsu, you're going to get injured. Like I told you, I had to, you know, it was an ankle sprain for about four months. Like I couldn't really do any, any training because it was really bad. It took a long time to heal. Well, there's other injuries that are going to happen, right? Say if we do guillotine days, my neck will get jacked up. I, it'll be, I had to go to chiropractor for a long time after like one of my first sessions, but is that more dangerous than not knowing how to defend yourself when you are attacked by someone that knows how to fight? Okay. Like the risk is actually significantly higher to not be training in jujitsu than to deal with the small injuries that could come. But your brain isn't telling you that when you're trying to find a reason to justify not doing it because it's scary, right? There's always a risk associated with anything that you could do. And you and in everything in life, it's going to work that way. Like, well, I, well, I have kids. What if, what if I'm not a good parent? What if, what if I don't make as much money because I got to feed these kids? Okay, well, what if you're 80 years old? You got no one to take care of you. That sounds a lot more risky than what you had in the beginning. So with real estate, the thing that people have to recognize in this world is there, there is a risk the market could go down. There is a risk things could break. There is a risk you could lose money and you should actually probably count on losing money for the first couple of years of anything you buy. You don't want that to happen, but I just assume the first two years that I own a property, things will happen that were unforeseen that I could not have known that that's my education that I'm going to pay. Hopefully I break even, I might lose a little bit, but I hedge my bet by making sure I kept working. And then after year two, it should be somewhat profitable. Just like, Hey, I'm going to go to jiu-jitsu. I'm going to get hurt. Something's going to happen. I'm going to twist something. I'm going to tweak something. I'm going to tap too late. I didn't know how my body worked. I didn't know how this thing worked. I'm going to roll with the wrong person. That that's how I ended up getting my injuries is first day in class, first time rolling ever. And you just went complete psycho at the time I was like, all right, I'm going to take it easy because it's his first time. But now I know, right? Like I'm not going to roll with that guy or don't assume that on their first day, they're going to want to take it easy. They might be going complete, you know, turbo mode. Um, but buying real estate over the long term is so much less risky than doing nothing and just letting inflation eat your money and having no retirement plan and having to jump into the market later when it's even more expensive. So the way that I beat the what if game that you were asking is I don't let myself just think about how I could get hurt in small ways. I think about the future and I say, well, what would it be like if I don't buy anything, if I don't invest my money in any way, like that's a whole lot scarier than if I buy something and a toilet breaks or a gas line needs to be replaced or something like that. Any, any comments on that before I get into the money is energy idea? Dude, that is so freaking awesome. I love that part because again, I think at some point, you have to go, what could go wrong? And then you have to say, what could go right? And you have to, at some point, go, I'm more excited about yeah. what could happen in the good way than I am scared about what could happen in the bad way. And just kind of wrapping it back up, I think it's a very good eye-opener for people that sat on the sidelines thinking things were going to go down. And now they have to experience that fun one, that pain of, you did not do this. And the worst case scenario happened, your money's worth less, your financial picture isn't any better, you're not in any better shape. So hopefully this is the indicator now of you felt the pain of what if went wrong. Now let's see what can go right if you just did a little bit. So I freaking love that. I think the what if game, I'm going to play that better now because of you said that. So I appreciate that. And I will remind you, just like you said, money is energy. 
So there's a guy named Michael Saylor, and he's a big Bitcoin proponent, really smart guy, um, lots of PhDs, like just a naturally intelligent man. And this is not me saying I'm a Bitcoin advocate. I just don't know enough about it to be able to say yes or no. Um, so it has nothing to do with Bitcoin, but he makes incredibly sound points about how inflation destroys economies and countries, that every single country has done it. And these are supported by other people like uh, Ray Dalio has a really good video about the rise and fall of empires related to how they spend their way into destroying their economies. Every single currency that has ever been created in the history of man has been destroyed other than the few we got going on right now. It's kind of an incredible concept if you think about currencies being tied to the rise of empires and they're not as solid as what we think. We feel like they are because we live within the empire and that's the only currency that we see. But he, he describes how money is energy and, and as countries create more of it, which is now, if, if anyone just Googles US monetary supply, you'll be sick to your stomach if you understood how much money. It's not just like we're making more of it. I mean, if you look at a graph, like this is how much money has slowly increased in the entire time America's been around. And then you get to 2020, it's like just straight up, okay? It's bleeding energy. It's it's like a, like an asset that you use it a lot and it breaks down. It's not going to be something that can be done forever. Like your car is losing value in a normal environment every single time you drive it with this, you know, uh, supply chain issues with getting the the chips that we need to make cars. We're in a bit of an exception right now, but money is is losing energy constantly. You have to figure out where you're going to put it right? Like you need to find a way to store money so that it can keep its energy. And real estate is a storage of value. It is a way to put your money somewhere where it won't lose its energy. So one thing that the human brain does wrong when it comes to understanding money that everyone listening to this probably needs to reevaluate is they assume that the supply of money is the same. Just it, you don't think about it. You subconsciously just assume however much like money's out there is the same amount. So if I get more of it, I am becoming wealthier. The reality is that every single year, the money that we have is increasing very quickly and it's becoming cheaper. You are losing wealth every single day. From the time you've been listening to this podcast to now, you've lost money. You've lost wealth just as things happen. The natural state is decay, right? And, and, and that's what happens when we print a lot of money. If you want to just stay even, you have to be storing that money in a place that is going up in what we call value or price, but you're not actually gaining wealth. You're just staying where you were. And if you look back at like a hundred years ago, how much money was in there and, and you adjust for inflation. If you bought a house a hundred years ago, you probably didn't become wealthy. You just kept the wealth that you already had because inflation, real estate in general moves with it. Now, obviously different markets are different. You can do things to add value. But if you're trying to build wealth, what you actually have to do is buy something like real estate and add value to it. You have to make it worth more to actually add value. Otherwise, you're probably breaking even. Our minds don't see it like that. And so when we think about buying real estate, that feels risky because we're saying, what could happen that I could lose what I already have? We don't understand you're already losing what you have. That's what you have to do just to stay even, not even to get ahead. And if our minds understood how money loses energy and how rapidly it is, investing it in something like real estate would not feel nearly as scary as it does where you're assuming that whatever you have is, is safe and solid and to go put it out into something in the world is actually taking the risk. Man, that is so deep on so many levels. But if that doesn't make you want to take action and do something with it, because like literally this is the time in the world where 
like you said, every day you're not doing something with it to at least stay in the fight, you're losing that fight. So you have to throw some punches. You have to do some things in there, man. I, I think that that's incredible. And, you know, I know I, I don't want to take up your whole day. You've been awesome with your time, but there's an, another thing that I wanted to touch on that you and I were texting about was the changes in things. And like, I know the amount of stuff that I look at at a daily basis that I get like, man, like I'm, I'm trying to just focus on protecting the wealth that I have. Yeah. And now I'm also looking at like, well, am I focusing too much on this? And now I, I'm missing out on the opportunity to get in on the metaverse or, I mean, Clubhouse was such a great example, dude. I had so many people literally while we were doing a podcast, they had two or three phones in their drawers that were on something like leeching followers on Clubhouse and you didn't want to miss the, and now Clubhouse isn't even really a thing, but the amount of stuff on a daily basis from NFTs to Bitcoin to crypto to different real estate strategies that it will literally make you crazy trying to focus on all those things. And I can't imagine how much exponentially more things you get every day from like good ideas on the podcast and people, different things. And you had mentioned that sometimes you just have to literally lock yourself in your room and like give your brain a minute to recharge. How do you handle the overwhelming opportunities that are there on every single day of figuring out what to focus on and not get carried away with a going in too many different directions or be losing focus on the things that are really your bread and butter. It's legit. It can be crazy. And I know you and I aren't the only people that feel it. It's just, there's the fear of missing out that's screaming at you. Cause you hear about the success stories. They call it sur survivor bias. You really only hear about the person that did amazing buying this NFT and it went up a ton. <laughs> the people that went and ate it, they're not bragging about it on social media saying I, I did this thing. So if you just think about that, like there's this constant voice saying, go do it, go do it, go do it. This person did it. You don't want to miss out. There's a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It's one of my favorite books that's ever written. And it's basically like wealth building principles that will stand the test of time. Just like we talked about principle versus techniques. The techniques that someone used 100 years ago to build wealth will be different than now, but the principles will be the same. And one of the rules, the one that stuck with me the most from that book is they tell this story of this guy that worked really hard. He saved up all this money. He would like, you know, sleep only a couple hours a night so he could get up. His hands were all shriveled up from like chiseling information into tablets, I believe is how he made money. And this guy comes to him. He's like, hey, I got an opportunity for us to make a huge return. See, we are able to buy these diamonds from this place or these jewels. We're going to put them on a boat. We're going to sail over here. And these people have way more money. They're going to pay a ton for these jewels. We're going to get a 300 times return. This is an incredible opportunity. Do you want to do it? And the guy goes, yeah, he takes all of his hard-earned money that he had worked for years to save. And he gives it to the dude to go invest in this venture. Well, what it turns out is that they didn't buy jewels. They bought glass that looked like jewels. They got ripped off because they did not understand the asset class they were investing in. So they ended up getting no return on their money because the smart people in the other country that they went to were able to tell that these are fake. And the lesson there is don't invest in anything that you don't understand, right? And when that sunk its way into my mind and I was humble enough to acknowledge it, that's the weapon I use to fight off the NFTs coming after me, like buy me, buy me, buy me. Like, yeah, you could be great. You could be amazing. I could make tons of money here, but I don't understand it. So right off the bat, I'm just not going to do it. And I have to be okay with recognizing I, I could lose out on opportunity, but I'm all right with that because that's not an asset class I understand. If I want to invest in NFTs, I need to commit myself to learning that asset class. I got to put a lot of effort and time and energy and like 
I guess those are the three things you'd have to put into it to, to get a good feel for it so that I know the difference between colored glass and a jewel. At that point, I will allow myself as David to go buy into this asset class. And when I do that, I realize, yeah, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do it that bad. The whole appeal of it is <laughs> I don't have to do anything. It just comes my way and I buy it and it does really great. Um, so that's sort of how I've learned to measure my own emotional response when I see like, oh, here's a great opportunity. I remember there was a time where like cannabis clubs were just exploding and you heard about all these people making money with those. And it was very tempting to go put your money into marijuana growth. And now like, at least where I'm in California, they're everywhere. I don't think everyone's doing great. I think that market is saturated. It's very competitive. I don't think that they're making a ton of money like it would have looked like in the beginning. Uh, in general, I think, and that goes for people with real estate too. Don't go buy real estate when you don't know anything about it. You got to actually study it. Like that's how people lost money in 05 and 06 is it was pure speculation. It was the same as that was the NFT of that day. Hey, just buy a house. You can sell it for a hundred grand more in a year. It's the easiest thing ever. And no one really understood how real estate worked or what the fundamentals of it were. So as long as you have that connection between, I got to put in the work before I get the payoff, right? Like when you watch the videos of people that used to take the Gracie challenges and they'd go say like, they knew nothing about jujitsu and a Gracie shows up, they're like, yeah, I'll see what I can do. They got destroyed, right? If that was your money, your money would be getting destroyed. Now, luckily a Gracie will let you tap out. They won't actually kill you <laughs> when they could have, right? But that, but no one's letting you tap out with your money. You're losing it. So if you wanted to actually take on a Gracie, you need to go put the time in and learn jujitsu first. And then you can discuss if that's a good investment for you to make. Uh, I think if everybody takes that approach, they'll have the discipline to recognize if this is a good decision for them. And if you give yourself that period of time that you got to learn the asset class, there's a big cooling off. You're going to realize, oh, whatever I thought in my head they were describing in this marketing is very different than what this actually looks like in real life. Man, that, that's such great info. And I think it comes back to having the discipline and the accountability to learn about what you're doing and take the responsibility to educate yourself on it. I had a conversation yesterday with somebody and she was like, hey, I live in Georgia. Everybody's talking about buying these properties in Alabama. Is there money to be made in Alabama? I go, the people you're talking to that are making money in Alabama, it's because they're focusing on Alabama. There's no right or wrong. If, as long as somebody stops and goes, I'm going to focus on NFTs. I'm going to focus on Bitcoin. I'm going to focus on Georgia. I'm going to focus on Atlanta. If you stop and you focus and you educate yourself on that, you will find a way to make money in that asset class in that area. You know, it's just pick something and focus. Don't go all over the place, but people tend to discount the thing that's in front of them and look for something else. And, you know, as the, as the world changes a little bit, one of the things that you and I had also said was like the Elon Musk, the Eddie Bravos, the John Danahers, the David Greens that are out there that are innovating things and the way that everything has changed over the years. I thought it would be really fun to talk about David Green has a time machine. 10 years go by, 20 years go by. What do the following things look like in your, in your movie with the way the world's changed, starting with like MMA? Let's say, what do you see MMA being? You get out of a time machine right now and you're going to go see Ally Aquinta's kid fight in the UFC. What does it look like? That's so good that you asked that. So I think the future of like jujitsu and then therefore MMA Will uh, well, first off, you'll have more of a blending of all the styles, right? Right now, everybody trains a little bit of everything. That's that's a side note, a really good thing when people are saying, Well, how can I make money easier? It would be the same as if you were a Muay Thai person who's like, Well, that guy is really good at wrestling. Should I just start wrestling and then I'll beat everybody? Well, if you're gonna put the time <laughs> in to learn it, yeah, but that's that's a different question, right? Um I think you still see someone who's focused on one discipline and then has some pieces from the other ones. 
in 20 years, that will have, they'll look much more similar, right? So right now, like, let's say with jujitsu, you've got different positions you're trying to get to like ground and pound is probably like, try to get to mount and beat on them, right? If you're in their guard, you got a couple things you can use. I think you will have people will working things into jujitsu where from this position you can punch in this way. So it won't be just, I want to control the person or I'm trying to get to a submission. It will also be, this is a favorable position because from here you can use your right elbow to drop elbows from side control or like they will be working strikes into what we typically consider jujitsu. They won't look different and ground and pound will be way, way more refined. That's one thing. I think with jujitsu in general, it'll be a lot more no-gi and I think it'll be incredibly fast. So when I look at videos from the NBA, like when it first started, I remember being in like high school thinking I would beat these dudes. Like they are so <laughs> slow. They can't dribble. They're not that good. Well, that's because they'd only been playing basketball for like four years out of their life. Basketball was a brand new type of thing to people. I think we'll look back at these really old jujitsu. Like it will be old at that time. And we'll be like, God, you guys were so slow. Like what were you trying to figure out here? It's going to look like two rabid squirrels just swirling all over the place. And out of the middle of it, someone's going to tap. And you're like, I didn't even see what happened there. Like I can, I can see a world where smaller uh, guys are definitely, and more women are doing it. Like I think jujitsu is an amazing sport for, for women. Like the, um, the natural physical deficiencies they have compared to men don't show up nearly as much in jujitsu. And it's just like fun to watch it. Cause they're so much more graceful and fluid than the guys are. So I think you'll see a lot more women in grappling. And I think the grappling you see will be like Marcelo Garcia style, just like two people flying all over the place. There won't be as many big guys. Um, I thought you were gonna ask me about what like the financial world would look like, but this is oh, much more interesting. No, we're, we're gonna go down that road too. I had a couple <laughs> of points of what, the, what you see when you get out of your time machine. But So how far off sorry. do you think I am as a black belt? What do you think about that? No, I agree, man. I think that there's going to be a lot of positions that become the NFTs of things that were exciting for three, six, nine months, and then people go back to a lot of the core fundamentals. But I think that those things stood the test of time. But I think the setups that people are doing and the ways to, like you said, tie that in so now you can attack from this position so it's better with just these little variations and then allowing the fact that I think the innovation of it is going to be mind-blowing because you had, to your point, like we were saying earlier, 15 years ago, if you didn't know a Gracie or when one was coming to your coast, you got to train with one who was maybe affiliated with one a few times a year to now there's a Starbucks or a jujitsu gym on every corner. And now even in the last two or three years, when I go and I travel around the country and I I drop in and I train with these other black belts, they're finally to the point where it's all they have to do. That's their whole life. So now you have guys that are running gyms that can run 24 hours a day and then guys that are growing up on the mats. And I think that level is going to just freaking explode like internet to no internet with the world in a very short amount of time. And I think that there's probably also going to be a lot more learning how to be a more dynamic athlete, how to have less injuries, how to train smarter. And I think the weight classes and the weight cutting and all that stuff is going to be probably out. There's going to be healthier ways to do things, which will have people be able to train harder and better and smarter and faster. You know, I didn't mention something I think will also be the case. I don't know what the timeline will be if it's 20 years less more. But I think that technology, like your phone that exists outside of your body will sort of be inside your body. So you will be able to see what your blood pressure is, what your A1C count is, um, what your heart rate is, and a lot more 
because they will have incorporated technology into your body that will be monitoring a lot of this type of stuff, which will lead to decreased injuries. So I think in the future, you'll be able to just anything you want to know about how your body is performing, you'll be able to like look at some display on your palm, or maybe you have like a smaller version of a phone or something that's reading what's going on in your body. And we'll just tell you right then and there. So you'll learn when you're training, what keeps your heart rate lower, what stuff works for your type of body. And there will be like, people whose job is to say, all right, this martial art discipline, I'm not just going to teach you techniques. I'm going to look at you holistically and say, based on your body type and how your body operates, this is the way that you should be executed. It'll be a lot more refined. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan Lamagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He's played all over the world and he's also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan, all you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. I agree with that, man. The next question was going to be technology, so that answers that question. But I also think, to your point there's probably going to be ways where like almost like a total recall type thing where I wake up in the morning and I go, I got to drill triangle escapes today and I hit a button and I have a simulation that is going to give me like a real resistance, but it's like a a, a 3d grappling dummy or something like that, that I actually don't have to get up and sweat all day or have that resistance. So I think being able to have a training partner, like a black belt at your fingertips that you can wake up and switch and just train, I think is, is probably going to be a reality as well, man. So it's, it's all exciting stuff on the MMA front, on the technology front, I thought that that was a really good point too, that's going to trigger into health. And of course, I have to ask you, 15, 20 years you get out of your time is seeing what does financial and real estate worlds look like in your future? It's not, I don't like it, what I'm seeing, just to be, <laughs> to be straight up. I think that technology has already increased the point and will continue to increase the point that the people with more resources, which in this case is institutional capital, hedge funds, Wall Street, stuff like that, is going to push out the little guy. So right now, there's a lot of people making a lot of money in Airbnb. Well, the advantage of Airbnb is most people would rather stay at one than in a hotel because you get better service. You you go to a hotel, you got some staff member making $17 an hour that hates their job. You ask for something, you got to ask four times in a row. The experience isn't that great. The air conditioning doesn't work that good, whatever the case is. Like they want to close breakfast right at 10 o'clock when you come walking in or something. Well, with Airbnb, if they give you bad service, the reviews show up and now no one books. So what you get is attention from an individual that wants to create a better experience that you now choose that over the hotel. That's why I think Airbnb has done well. I think what will happen is you'll get billion, billion, billion dollar companies that come in and buy up all of the homes for ridiculous prices in a market and they have a vacation like brand or branch of whatever they are. So like, like Blackstone has some kind of like vacation arm that they brand. 
that, or maybe they buy Airbnb. And so they're the ones that are now in the hospitality industry. They own all the properties. And for the, the little people to compete, I think because we're just not building enough homes and, and if that doesn't change, I think what you'll get is instead of David buying a house, Nick buying a house, Johnny buying a house, you're going to have 15, 20 people put their money in together and buy a house as a group. Like crowdfunding will probably become a lot more um, popular because it's the only way you'll be able to compete with the people that have a lot more cash and can do things. And NFTs may be connected to that. So maybe you buy into an NFT that has 20 parts that's tied to this property and you own 120th of that and you get whatever the percentage of the equity and the cash flow is coming to you. And if you decide you want to get out of that property in something else, you sell your share of that NFT to somebody else, get your money, and then go invest in somebody else's NFT. We probably won't call them NFTs at that time, but it'll be that concept. So that real estate will end up traded much more like how stocks of companies are being traded right now. Super interesting. And I agree with all that. I think it's it definitely goes with everything, you know, hotels and Marriott's and all those different things. And I think for future stuff, another thing that's exciting is the connection. I think 20 years ago, I didn't know I would be able to hit a button and talk to a real estate expert, yeah. be part of a group like that, and then connect with people. We missed you very much in Jacksonville, Florida, where we saw our mutual friend, Al Jermaine Sterling, defend his UFC championship. And it was me, Chris Weidman, David Perret, Ally Quinta, Corey Miller, a bunch of the GoBundance guys. We were all there and we were all talking about how we missed you. We wanted you to be there. But I think that it's an amazing thing because for people who don't know, you have a mastermind and Al Jermaine Sterling is part of that mastermind. And being able to have a connection that you can jump on and talk to a David yeah. Green and be part of a community like that to talk about like what's going on in the market, what should I do with my money, what's realistic, how do I get off this what of wheel, I think is a huge, probably the most beneficial resource we can have right now with the communication and the technology we have. So I'd love to hear about what you're doing with David Green's mastermind and how to invest with David Green on the multifamily stuff you're doing. Well, if you go back to like biblical times, there was people that were traveling like thousands of miles to listen to King Solomon speak because his wisdom was just, it was worth it to go that far to hear this person talk. And if you just go back a hundred years, if you want to learn anything, you had to go find a person that knew it and convince them to talk to you. You probably had to travel in your proximity to get close to them. That was how information was passed along. It is insane how fast wisdom can, can change hands right now, right? Like I've often thought, how long before I stop asking a human being a question and I just Google it? Because there's probably not a question that could be asked that I couldn't Google, right? Maybe when Elon Musk makes that, what's that thing called that he has? It goes into your brain. I can't remember the name of it. He's put it in pigs already. What? I didn't even know about that. Yeah, it's scary, man. Like it'll connect different parts of your brain together so that like if your arm wasn't working, he can get it so that the the it's now firing the synapses are working to where you can control an arm and it's it's uh, neuro something neurolink i think is what he calls it huh. his vision is that it will just be a way to put your phone in your own head so you won't have to push buttons on it you will think and it will find the answer for you in google so if you like yeah imagine if you don't have to memorize your times tables anymore you just think in your head what's eight times seven and it pops up as 56 like the way we learn will be very different so the information is out there but what 
And everyone sees the positive in that. What they don't recognize is everyone else is getting it too. Yeah, you're learning jujitsu. So was every single other person. So the question isn't, do I do jujitsu or not? The question is, do I go more than the other people do? Because you don't recognize you're in a competition, right? And the easier that it becomes to have all these things at our fingertips that we're so happy about is creating life to be harder because other people are doing it too. So now it's not just about getting the information. It's about getting more information and doing more with it than whatever other people have. And a mastermind is a way that you can make sure you're getting more information, you're getting more accountability, and you're getting it from people that are doing something with it so that you're taking action. It's the same as, hey, I watch jujitsu videos on Instagram and YouTube, and I kind of like, you know, play around with my dog or my pillow or something like that, trying to do it. Versus I go to this academy and I train with these people and I have training partners. And if I don't show up, they say, where were you? Or if I see them doing something really cool, I say, how was that? There's a person that shows me. I, I think this is the future is that just it tr you're tricking yourself thinking that information is going to make you wealthy. It's not. It's being in an environment of other people like you at Matt Sarah's gym. You're rolling around with killers like it's going to make you be better. Just I would bet it just the average person shows up at your gym. They're going to do a lot better than the person that goes to Acme Jiu-Jitsu down the street where it's like, come when you want. You don't have a relationship with these people. You know, you don't form the bond that you're going to form from like doing hard things together, competing with each other. So um, in my opinion is that too many people are being lulled to sleep thinking that they have information and that that's going to make them better. No, it actually is making it harder because everyone else has it too. And they may be using it when you're not. Dude, that's, that's huge. And I can attest for just what masterminds have done for me overall. And I see what it's doing for guys that are part of your mastermind. You're one of the most shouted out guys on this podcast time after time. Again, the information you're putting out there, but to your point, if just listening to the bigger pockets podcast was going to make you financially free, there, there would be a hundred million millionaires. That's right. What's right. the difference? The difference is this, this piece of it. And I think at some point, some people are going to understand that during this episode. Some people are going to understand it in six, nine, 12, 18 months, but you're eventually going to have to face the fact that that is just part of what all of us have done and having the opportunity to be part of that and really be connected with a guy like you in a group like yours, I think is a freaking no brainer for anybody listening to that. So you have the opportunity to be part of the David Green community with your David Green mastermind. And I know invest with David Green is something I've been watching you do as well, which is awesome. You're raising funds and you're partnering up on different projects. So talk a little bit about how people can be part of that. So the mastermind, if they just go to davidgreenmastermind.com, they can get information about that. It's incredibly cheap right now. We're going to be raising the price. So, but the people who are already in it will be grandfathered. And it's just going to be new cool. people where the price is going to go up higher. Um, investwithdavidgreen.com is a place where credit investors can go to register to make some money off me passively. Now, it, the credit investor thing, everyone hears that and they're like, oh, I'm being excluded. It's not that I don't want to help you make money. The SEC will not allow me to take your money unless you're a accredited investor. And the reason is that um, when you get something that's traded on the stock market, the SEC oversees it. They, there's regulation they have to go by to try to keep companies from ripping you off. Well, they can't do that for everybody that raises money everywhere if they're not registered with the SEC. So their solution was, well, we're not going to be able to watch what David's doing with your money. We don't know that he's not running off to Vegas and gambling it away or doing something stupid. So you have to have a net worth of a certain amount or make a certain amount of money that we can now trust you know what you're doing. So it's, it's actually there to try to protect people from being ripped off. It's just when someone, it's like me and they trust me already, they, they get upset that they're not able to be involved. So at this point, it's only accredited investors, or if I have a pre-existing relationship with someone, like if you wanted to give me money to invest in something, I could make the case that 
well, I know him already, so you would be good, but I couldn't mix your money with the people that I, I don't know. You have to pick one or the other. Uh, but it's idea for people that are either too busy to want to get into real estate, too scared to want to go pull the trigger themselves. They know that they want to build wealth, but they just don't want to make the mistake. Or they've got other things going on and they just want some passive income until they get to the point that they're ready to go buy it themselves. So the big, the big challenge with when someone is raising money, at least this is how I see it, is that you're not investing in a person, you're investing in a deal. So the average syndicator can say, hey, put your money into this deal. Here's a pro forma. Here's the operating agreement. Here's all the information that no one will ever know if it's accurate or not. They can put whatever they want in there. No one can actually verify whether that's true. Whatever you're told is what you're just going to say. All right. And if the deal goes good and you make your money, that's great, which has been happening up till now most of the time because it's been an insanely good market. But if the deal goes bad, they just say, well, hey, you invested in the deal. So that's how it goes. This was a risk you knew that you were taking. I don't like that because I believe most people that are investing with me aren't investing in the deal. They're just trusting David Green. And so I can't lose someone's money. A, I just want to be able to sleep at night. And B, it would hurt my reputation more than it would hurt them losing their money if it got out there that I'm losing people's cash. So there really isn't an, an option for me where I can fail. I have to pay people back. I have to make sure that they get their interest because my reputation means way more both financially and personally than whatever money, a couple hundred grand that somebody might put into a deal. So I've got mine structured differently. It's not attached to a specific property that I can have the backing out and say, hey, that's what you get. You took a risk. That's how it goes. It's tied to me personally. So regardless of how the deal performs, they're going to get the money that they put into this. They're going to get paid back, which means I got to keep working. I got to keep putting money in reserves. I got to keep running these, these companies, right? Like you don't get to just be like, all right, I'm on the beach drinking my ties while everybody else works hard. If I have the integrity of needing to know I'm going to pay people back. So if someone's looking for something like that, which has a much more sheltered downside, but won't have as much of the upside of when you take the risk of putting your money in a deal with another person and you might lose it, well, you're probably going to get more upside from that. They can go there, they can fill out the forum and, and we'll be in touch with them about what it would look like. It's very simple. Dude, I, I think that that's awesome. So for people who are not accredited and are looking to eventually get there, there's options like the mastermind to help you figure out how to become wealthy enough and have enough experience to be an accredited investor. And then once you hit that, then you can go into the passive stuff. That is there. a great point. Yes. Yeah. And the, the mastermind can put you in a personal relationship with me that would oh. then open up those doors. Boom. So there's always, there's always ways in and to tie it up in a nice big bow, part of the benefit and the responsibility to where you are today being a public figure. It's like you said, you've built yourself up to where you are. And that's when I tell people when they call me and they go, Hey man, like I'm interested in investing with the deal. I go look there. It's very easy to find me. Like I'm not going anywhere. So for yeah. me to screw you to like, just, it, you know, you're in the public eye. Now you're David Green. You're not going anywhere. You're, you're recognizable. It's hard. And now you're accountable and you hold yourself to a higher standard because of the community you're around, which is exactly how we started this whole podcast, which is why you, sir, are where you are today because you bring your A-game to everything you do and you have absolutely brought your A-game to this podcast. This was a freaking banger of an episode, man. We talked for a long time. You were extremely generous with it. I absolutely loved this conversation in this episode and I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your time, your knowledge, your experience, and your anecdotes. Any final thoughts before I let you go about your day? I would just encourage people when they get done listening to this to ask themselves how often they've been letting the what if this goes wrong make their decision versus what if I don't do it. 
And just, you've got to make peace with the fact you can't get away from risk. Like, okay, if you don't go to class, you don't learn jujitsu, you don't learn a martial art, you're probably less likely to be injured. But what happens when you're walking down the street, uh, coming home from a bar at midnight and someone is dragging your girl into the car and you don't know how to stop them? Do you, do you want to go through a sprained ankle or a tweak in your neck, or do you want to have to live with that type of a feeling for the rest of your life? Like there's, there's risks that are going to be associated with either one. And I know that that's grim, but I tend to look at finances as much. They're not just like a nice thing on the side. They've been considered a luxury because we've lived in the most affluent country in the history of the world at the best time that there's ever been to live here. We have destroyed our currency so that we could have an incredible high cost of living while shutting the country down during COVID, right? Like it's easy for us to say money isn't all that matters or money's not important when everything's taken care of and bad things aren't happening, but that is not guaranteed. There's no guarantee that it's not all going to fall apart, that America won't at some point become a socialistic country where building wealth is incredibly difficult, where it's hard to find food. Like I think because we haven't seen that yet she's like well no one's tried to drag my girlfriend into a car yet that doesn't happen but man when i was a cop i saw stuff like that happen all the time and if you if you don't live in america you see the horrors like what's happening in venezuela right now like life can get really bad really quick and and money is a form of protection for yourself and people that you love and so i tend to approach it from the perspective of it's important not because i want a ferrari not because i care about wearing nice clothes not because my instagram shows me traveling to bora bora but because i'm trying to prepare for like the bad that can happen and i just want to get that message out there i'm not trying to depress everybody but it is easy to get lulled into a false sense of security but you're always in a battle right just like that first day you show up on the mat and someone that you never thought could ever take you is making you hate life and you just can't escape it right like they were there all along you just didn't experience them until that that actually happened the, the same is true life can get very bad very quickly and so if you're not preparing you will have a lot of regret when it does i have lived my life by knowing how crappy regret feels and i've never regretted taking the risk i've always regretted not taking it so mm -hmm. I second that. I love your words, man. Mic drop on that 100%. You have been freaking awesome. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Everybody check the show notes for all the ways to connect with you on social media. Invest with you. Check out the mastermind. David, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Nick.